Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mission Moonfire by Jack Lancer. Volume 3, Chapter 7, The Face on the Bridge Vogel's face remained calm as he uttered his warning. He had the business-like, unflappable air of an old pro who had survived too many tight spots to worry unnecessarily. What sort of trouble? Chris asked. The travel agency's being watched. By whom? We don't know. We haven't been able to identify the stakeout. But it's definitely no one from McKinsey Borough. This was the second section of the Interior Ministry, the Turkish Secret Police. Chris pointed up at one of the huge green medallions near the gallery arches, as if he were remarking on the beautiful Arabic script that recorded the names of Allah the Prophet and the first caliphs. Any idea what attracted attention to your setup? he asked. Mustafa's been keeping an eye on the antique shop, the place where Herman the German was seen, Vogel explained. Could be someone spotted Mustafa and trailed him back to the agency. Uh, you're sure your boy's clean? Vogel's face hardened. Don't you worry about Mustafa. I know him less better than I know you, Sonny. He saved my life once in Korea and twice over here. Chris nodded. I just thought I'd ask. It happens someone was staked out at the airport, watching for my partner and me when we landed. The teen agent told about the hook-nosed man in the mousetrap. Vogel looked as happy as if he had just discovered a black widow spider crawling up his leg. You realize this could mean you've been blown, that you've already been identified as American agents. Chris gave another casual nod. Well, the thought did occur to us. The guide was droning on, switching from Turkish to English to French, as he told how the mosaics had been uncovered beneath layers of paint after St. Sophia became a museum. Again, Vogel periscoped the crowd milling around the building. Where's your buddy? Leaning against the pillar over there. All right, listen. It's possible I've been tailed here. I'm going to walk out. Give me a long head start and see if anybody follows. If the coast is clear, join me outside. Make it the Galata Bridge if we get separated. Chris murmured, understood. Vogel strolled out of the museum. Chris scanned the throng. No one appeared to display any undue interest in Vogel's departure. Presently, Chris rejoined Geronimo and reported his conversation with the CIA man. The Apache's wristwatch was still beeping a muted R signal. Anything from the bug yet? Chris asked. Just background noise. I think he's still at the airport. I once heard something like a flight call coming over a loudspeaker. Okay, let's see what's cooking outside then. The boys walked out of St. Sophia. Geronimo's hawk-like eyes quickly picked out Vogel's tall figure in the distance, going up Hilali Amr Avenue in the direction of the waterfront. Is the coast clear? Chris asked, trusting the Indian's instinct more than his own. Geronimo hesitated, dark eyes watchful. If anyone tailed Vogel here, 
He may be hanging around still, waiting for us to move. St. Sophia occupied a whole block next to the wall enclosing the Tokapi Palace Museum, once the original Seraglio, residence of the Turkish sultans. At Geronimo's suggestion, the boys separated and circled the block, then rejoined each other and hurried after Vogel. They finally caught up with the CIA man near the Sirkechi railway station. As they fell into step beside him, Chris heard a faint ringing. Telephone, coming over the bug, Geronimo said tersely. He turned up the volume. The three agents heard the sound of a telephone receiver being lifted off the hook. A voice said, Facile, connoisseur. Facile speaking, Chris translated. The sound of a man's breathing could be heard with amazing clarity. Evidently, Facile had set the mousetrap down close to the phone while he took the call. After several moments, they heard him mutter an acknowledgement and hang up. Presently, the didot didot beeping resumed. He must have been waiting at the airport for that call, Chris conjectured. Maybe orders for his next move. Chris's guess was soon borne out. As they continued walking toward the waterfront, the signal beeping was interrupted again, this time by the sound of a car door opening and slamming, then an engine starting up and the background noises of the highway traffic. He's on his way somewhere, Geronimo remarked. Vogel and the boys paused in the great square fronting the Yeni Kami Mosque near the busy harbor. Ahead was the Galata Bridge across the Golden Horn to the newer section of Istanbul. To the right, beyond the harbor mouth, where the Golden Horn branched off from the Bosphorus, ocean liners and freighters lay at anchor in the roadstead. In the distance, beyond these, loomed the Asiatic shores of the city. We'll take a water taxi across the Horn and find ourselves a place to eat and talk, said Vogel. Then you two can go on to your hotel. Crossing by water, he added, would be safer than using the crowded bridge, in case they had not shaken off any shadow. Geronimo shook his head. No, make that two water taxis. The Apache's eyes were still darting about restlessly. Vogel gave him a frowning glance, then nodded. All right, I'll go first. Tell your boatman to follow mine. The CIA man walked toward the quay near the foot of the bridge. Chris and Geronimo saw him hail a boatman and embark in the oared skiff. The two youths followed. It was evening rush hour in Istanbul and the harbor was busy with waterborne commuter traffic. Ferries were leaving for the Asiatic side of the strait. Chris engaged a boatman and told him to follow Vogel's taxi. The boys settled back to enjoy the colorful scene as their water taxi pushed off. Unlike Vogel's, their own craft had a small fringed white canopy overhead. Chris turned for a last glimpse of the older section of the city. The setting sun seemed to touch it, with the magic of an Arabian Nights tale. Sails from Greece, Syria, Egypt, the whole eastern Mediterranean, lay clustered at the fish market quays. Chris's eyes swept over the Galata Bridge. It was jammed with homeward-bound workers and fringed with sign poles in Turkish, advertising radios and chewing gum. Something glinted brightly, the twin glass eyes of binoculars. A figure had paused at the bridge rail to peer down toward the water. A sense of danger jolted Chris like a charge of electricity. The next instant, he was startling the boatman with a shriek. Vogel! Get down! Vogel must have reacted by instinct, 
flinging himself down in his boat. A red ray lanced out from the binoculars on the bridge. It shot past Vogel's head and kicked up a sizzling geyser of steam from the water. A beam from a laser ray gun. The man on the bridge lowered his binoculars and turned with a glance of rage, trying to discover who had shouted the warning. Then he pulled back from the rail and melted into the moving throng, but not before Chris had time to glimpse his face. Bulging forehead, pug nose, tiny pointed chin. It had been the skull-like visage of Dr. Death. Ne var, ne oldu in vindim, the bewildered boatman was asking. What's wrong, sir? Uh, nothing, it's all right. Keep on rowing, Chris told him in Turkish. It was obviously hopeless to reach the bridge and pick Tote out of the throng before he escaped. Chris could not even be sure which way the man was heading. The blond teenager glanced at his pail. Geronimo shrugged slightly, face impassive as ever. The whole incident had gone almost unnoticed in the busy harbor. Presently they reached the quay on the other side of the Golden Horn and rejoined Vogel. It was Tote himself. I'm almost sure of it, Chris reported. He fired from a pair of trick binoculars with a built-in laser ray gun. Vogel looked shaken. Great. So instead of us hunting Todd, he's hunting us. Or me, anyway. Well, at least this proves he's in Istanbul. The CIA man added tensely, We better get out of here. They were in Galata now, the business district. An area of tall, huddled gray buildings, clanging trolleys and cobbled streets, winding steeply up the hill toward Beyoglu, where the shopping center and hotels were located. Vogel hailed a taxi. They climbed in and he gave the driver the name of a restaurant, then turned to the boys. Now then, about our friend Herman the German. Could he have followed us from St. Sophia? Negative, Geronimo said flatly. With that face, we'd have spotted him for sure. Then someone may have seen me leave and radioed I was heading toward the bridge. Tote may even have sighted me by chance. The CIA man turned toward Chris. Think he saw you after you shouted to warn me? It's not likely he could pick me out with all that water traffic. So your cover may still be safe. Providing you didn't see us together at Yeni Kami before you boarded your boat, Chris added. Vogel nodded gloomily. It's a cinch he's wise to the travel agency, and he knows American intelligence is looking for him. They drove out of town on the coast road along the Bosphorus past the Dolombachi Palace and the Mithapasa Stadium. Finally, the cab drew up to an open-air cafe within sight of the thick-walled, round-towered fortress of Rumeli Hissar, perched on a steep hill overlooking the shore. The three agents found a table outdoors under some lime trees. As the waiter approached, Geronimo tuned down his watch, which was still beeping its steady dit-da-dot signal, interrupted by occasional background noises. Vogel ordered fresh-caught swordfish grilled over a spit with bay leaves. While they ate, he told the boys about receiving the first report that Dr. Death had seen in Istanbul at the shop of the rug and antique dealer named Terhan Hamid. Hamid's shop is in the Grand Bazaar, Vogel went on. He has a part-time assistant, 
a girl who's also a student at the University of Istanbul. We figure she might be your easiest approach. Her name's Gersel. Nulifer Gersel. Geronimo grunted. Nulifer? What kind of a name is that? It's a very beautiful name, said Chris. It means pond lily in Turkish. Vogel pulled a Polaroid snapshot from his pocket and handed it to the boys. On zone, the Apache muttered. You're right, Chunde. That is a beautiful name. The photo showed an almond-eyed girl with long jet-black hair. Chris nodded appreciatively. I can see this assignment will be no hardship. She's an orphan, by the way, Vogel added. Lives with her uncle, Selim Gersel. He's a retired professor of archaeology, probably the greatest living expert on Turkish antiquities. By the time they left the restaurant, darkness had fallen. Moonlight was magically silvering the Bosphorus, and the lights of Asia twinkled from the distant shore. Chris and Geronimo taxied back alone to their hotel in the Bieglu district. The clerk told them that their bags had already been taken to their room and asked if they would like a bellhop. Chris shook his head. Hayir, Tessakur, Ederim. We can find our way up, all right. As they stepped off the elevator on the third floor, a radio somewhere down the hall was blaring Turkish kaz. It sounded like a mixture of rock and roll and the wails of a strangling cat. The boys hurried to their own room, unlocked the door, and stepped inside. As they closed the door behind them and switched on the light, they became aware of another sound. The faint muted beeping from Geronimo's watch had suddenly swelled to a loud The mouse trap Chris froze and looked at his Apache buddy. Geronimo's eyes swept over the room and his hand moved automatically to turn off the noisy watch. At that moment a voice from the window drape snarled Do not move a menacing figure stepped into view. It was the hook-nosed man, Facile. Chapter 8. Truth Venom The switch by the door had turned on both the overhead room light and a lamp near the window. The glow from the lamp threw the hook-nosed man's features into sharp relief. Facile's blue-black stubble added nothing to his sinister charm. He was holding a pistol-like device in his right hand. Chris shifted slightly for a better look as their surprised visitor came closer. I said do not move! Facile's voice went up a notch. The results could be most unpleasant. We'll take your word for it, said Chris, and added, To what do we owe this pleasure? I will ask the questions. Suppose you tell me what you are doing in Turkey. Well, we were about to hit the sack before you... Oh, you mean why did we come to Turkey? Basile's face had taken on a dangerous look. His jaw muscles were working. That is what I mean. Chris shrugged. We were American college students on vacation. Is there a law against that? Do not waste your time. I saw you being met by that off from the Suleiman Travel Agency which I know very well is only the cover for an intelligence network, probably the CIA. Facile smiled suddenly, displaying big tombstone teeth. What you might call a bullseye guess, huh? 
We might, Chris conceded, if we knew what you were talking about. But please, go on. Gee whiz, we both knew Istanbul was throbbing with foreign intrigue, but we never expected to run into somebody like you. This is really fascinating. Don't you think so, Jerry? Fossil regarded them with a scowl. Very well. I will come straight to the point. That might be best, Chris agreed. I am offering you a deal. Would you be interested in buying some information on the whereabouts of, of a certain elderly man with a large forehead and a small chin? The offer caught Chris completely by surprise. His eyes flickered. Then his brain began clicking like a computer, estimating the probabilities. Was it possible that Fazil could lead them to Dr. Tote? Or was the deal only a trap to find out the boy's mission? Chris was tempted, but only for a moment. Somehow, Fasil's manner did not inspire confidence. An elderly man with a large forehead and a small chin? The teen agent mused. Would we be interested in anybody like that, Jerry? Not me. I don't know about you. Chris turned back to Fasil and shook his head regretfully. I'm sorry, not my cup of tea, I'm afraid. What exactly is this character? Some sort of performing dwarf? Fasil was clearly not amused. His hooked nose seemed to grow more prominent and menacing. Let me tell you something, my young friends. You see this device I'm holding? It would be hard not to, Chris murmured. It fires poison darts, darts tipped with a compound of cobra venom and holothurum. Oh, a poison secreted by the sea cucumber, I think, right? Correct! That effect is so agonizing. This is called truth venom. You know why? No, but I suppose you're about to tell us. Not that we're really curious. Shut up! It is called truth venom because the victim screams out the truth in order to be put out of his agony. Fazil's lips twisted. I will now count to three. At the end of that time, you had better talk and talk fast, my friends. Otherwise, you will both find out the effects of truth venom. The hard way! Fasil began to count. He had reached three when Chris suddenly exclaimed, Wait! You're ready to talk! Chris licked his lips nervously. All right, I'll admit it. We're secret agents. And why were you sent to Istanbul? Geronimo's eyes were like shiny black pebbles as he watched his partner reply. Well, it's like this. When we landed at Yeselkoy Airport today, we left a box at the airline counter. That box contained the first payment to an unknown agent who was to meet us in our hotel tonight and supply certain information. What sort of information? Chris shrugged. We don't know. It hasn't been turned over to us yet. Fasil scowled. You are lying, Essek! If this were true, you would have no way to check out its authenticity. That's not our job. The information would be evaluated by the uh, travel agency. Chris pretended to hesitate. Of course, the box may have contained a message. Yes, Fasil prodded. A message telling what kind of information was wanted, Chris added reluctantly. There was a moment of tense silence. Wheels were evidently turning in Fasil's head. Pick E, he said at last. We will find out how much truth there is in your story. Cautiously, he transferred the poison dart gun to his left hand. 
Then he reached into his coat pocket and pulled out the package which Chris had left at the airline counter. As you see, I have the box myself! Fasil chuckled smugly. I was waiting to hand it over to my superior, but since we are now getting down to brass nails, I will open it at once and check out what you have told me. With his free hand, Fasil shucked off the newspaper wrapping. He darted a quick glance at the small red box. The boys held their breath as he flicked open the catch. Aye! Fasil gave a yelp of pain as the anesthetic needle jabbed him. At that instant, Chris and Geronimo pounced before he could trigger the dark gun, no telling how quickly the anesthetic would act. Although taken by surprise and already groggy, Fasil threshed about wildly. His arm hit the floor lamp and it crashed over with an explosive pop from the shattering bulb. Instantly, the overhead light went out too. The teen agents pinned Fasil to the floor until they felt him go limp. What a mess, Chris muttered. We must have blown a fuse. Geronimo pulled out a pocket flashlight and beamed it through the darkness. The lampshade had been knocked off and a bulb had smashed against a metal heat register. The filament shorted to the duct, the Apache said. Probably popped a circuit breaker or blew a fuse, controlling a whole block of rooms. Doors could be heard opening along the hall and a sudden babble of voices. The next moment, somebody was knocking on the boy's door. Oh, great, just what we need. Chris hissed. A visitor. He scrambled to his feet and strode to the door and opened it a few inches. A tall, husky, elderly man, American from his looks, was standing outside. He was in shirt sleeves with his trousers held up by red suspenders. I'm your next door neighbor, Herkimer Nutley, the man said, thrusting out a ham-like hand. Chris took it briefly, reaching through the door. Glad to know you. Didn't catch your name. Chris Cool. Everything all right in there, son? Thought I heard a fight going on. Wall's kind of thin, you know. Chris gave a nervous laugh. Oh, just my roommate and I larking around. You know, boys will be boys. Afraid we broke a lamp and caused a short circuit. Really sorry about that. Uh, don't worry about it. No great harm done, I guess. Nutley's weather-beaten face relaxed. Just thought you might be having trouble. Never know what these foreigners will do. Figured if you was a fellow American, I might be able to help. Well, that was very kind of you. Thanks just the same, but we're okay. Uh-huh. I'm a retired police chief, you see. Nutley hooked a thumb under one suspender. If there was trouble, I'm experienced in handling that sort of thing. Oh, is that so? Well, that's great. Chris tried to ease the door shut, but Nutley went on. Yep. Served 32 years as chief of the force in Spring City, Nebraska. Handled all sorts of cases. What I remember, an escaped con, he tried to... Nutley broke off as the elevator door slid open. A hotel employee in a business suit, evidently one of the managerial staff, stepped out, followed by a workman with a kit of tools. I am so sorry for the trouble with the lights, ladies and gentlemen, the hotel employee said to the people in the hall. Our maintenance man will soon have it fixed. The mechanic opened a wall panel and fiddled with the fuse box. A moment later, the lights in Chris's area of the corridor returned. Well, all's well that ends well, Chris said brightly, and closed the door in Nutley's face. 
Turning back to Geronimo, he let out a long, hissing sigh of relief. We're not out of the woods yet, Chunde, the Apache said. What do we do with Jojo, the dog-faced boy here? He nudged Vasile with his boot. One thing at a time, please. I'm not prepared to cope with all these questions of higher policy yet. Chris moved toward a chair. Before he could reach it, there was another knock at the door. Flashing a desperate look at Geronimo, Chris went to deal with this latest interruption. A hotel workman was standing outside holding a light bulb, wisp broom, and a dustpan. The man next door said, you break lamp, I fix it, please. Well, um, it doesn't really matter. You can fix it tomorrow. Out of the corner of his eye, Chris saw Geronimo frantically booting Facile out of sight under the nearest bed. But I have everything here, sir, the workman insisted. I fix right away, fast. Well, okay, Chris did aside. Geronimo's face was expressionless. The workman set the lamp upright, unscrewed and replaced the broken bulb, and put the lampshade back on again. Then squatting down, he began whisking the broken bits of glass off the carpet into the dustpan. Chris felt himself going numb. This industrious idiot was whisking closer and closer to the bed. At any moment, he might reach out to whisk underneath it, maybe peer underneath it. That's good. That's really good, Chris said hastily, finding his voice. Mustn't wear the carpet out now, huh? <laughs> Another nervous laugh. Not good to leave broken glass, sir, still sweeping busily. You and other gentlemen must step on it at night, eat naked feet. Chris laughed heartily and planted himself in front of the bed in the path of the advancing whisk broom. Oh, no danger of that, thanks all the same. I always put my shoes on first thing when I get up. My friend has hard, horn-like feet. He's an Indian, you see. Used to walking around barefoot on the reservation. The workman glanced strangely at Geronimo, then back at Chris and shrugged and stood up. Chris pressed a tip of five Turkish lira into his hand. Tessakur ederim. Hos kendaniz effendim. The man went out. Chris and Geronimo looked at each other. All right, General Custer, the Apache said coldly. Get in the blower. Call Vogel at that emergency number he gave us. Let him figure out what to do with this guy. Chris cleared his throat, picked up the telephone. He gave Vogel's number to the switchboard operator and waited. The ringing went on for a long time, and no one answered. Chapter 9 Over Thy Head I am sorry, sir, your number does not answer. Thank you. Chris put down the phone and looked at his Apache buddy. Not in. But he told us we could reach him after hours. You suppose something has gone wrong? Chris scowled as he sank into a chair. Don't ask me. We have enough to worry about already. There was a thoughtful silence. How long did Pomeroy say that stuff would put a guy out for? Geronimo asked. At least twelve hours. Which means Facile may come too by morning. A fascinating prospect. I could hardly wait. So what happens then? You figure it out, medicine man. Geronimo frowned. It's a cinch. We can't just turn him loose. And how we can't turn him loose. That clown knows for sure that we're secret agents now. He could blow our cover, but good. There was another silence. Then Geronimo stood up. Let's give him the once-over. The boys pulled Facile's limp body out from under the bed and frisked him. 
He carried no identification, but his worry beads appeared to be the same kind as Murad's. Must be the same outfit, all right, Chris mused. Our jolly friends, the Moonfire Boys. Which still doesn't tell us if they're hooked up with Dr. Death, Geronimo pointed out. You're right. What about that dark gun? Geronimo patted his pocket. I picked it up when you were answering the door. As if the Apache's words were a signal, there was another knock. Chris gave a low moan. What is this, Grand Central Station? Never mind that. Let's get this guy out of sight, Geronimo hissed. Please, not under the bed again. This may be the janitor back for more whisk brooming. All right, then, where? Chris looked around wildly, and his eyes fell on the wardrobe. In there. There was more knocking. Geronimo grabbed Facile by the shoulders, and Chris took his legs. Together, they stuffed him into the wardrobe and shut it. Then Chris darted to the door. There was Herkimer Nutley, standing outside, thumb hooked around one suspender. His rugged, homely face bore a friendly smile. Howdy, Chris. Heard your voices, so I figured it wasn't too late to knock. You fellas aiming to do some more stepping out this evening? Chris struggled to focus his brain on the Nutley problem. Was he about to invite them out for some more reminiscences of the Spring City Police Force? This had to be squelched immediately. No, no, Chris said hastily, pretending to yawn. You know, Jerry and I are both pretty tired. We're just going to relax and then hit the sack. Uh, fine, same here. Nutley's smile widened. In fact, my wife's already gone to bed. Mind if I come in and gab with you for a spell? Chris felt like a fish out of water. He tried to think up a fast excuse, but couldn't. Well, uh, sure, he said in a sickly voice. Nutley strode into the room and thrust out a huge paw at Geronimo. Nutley's my name, Herc Nutley. Say, you're an engine, aren't you? Geronimo nodded. That's all right, boy, don't worry about it, the ex-police chief assured him heartily. Way I see it, you Indians got just as much right to call yourselves Americans as the rest of us. Well, that's awfully good of you, the Apache said. Didn't quite catch your name. Johnson. Geronimo Johnson. Nutley settled himself into a chair. Reminds me of an Indian ranch hand who came to Spring City one time, he began. The story took a long time to tell. It was not very interesting. Nutley took out an enormous cigar, bit off the end, and struck a match. He looked good for at least another hour of talking. Chris exchanged an alarmed glance with Geronimo. You fellas traveling for pleasure? Nutley inquired, getting a good grip on the cigar. That's right, we're college roommates. And what college do you go to? Kingston. Kind of early for summer vacation, ain't it? A bit, Chris smiled blandly. Nutley twirled his cigar between thumb and forefinger, studying the ash. Ella and me, we've been wanting to see the world all our lives. Saved up and made a few good investments. So after I retired, we figured it was now or never. Well, sir, we went to this travel agency in Omaha, and they laid out a real round-the-world tour for us. He began describing their travel itinerary in exhaustive detail. 
Chris's eyes suddenly focused on Fasil's hiding place. Good grief, what was happening over there? Nutley droned on. Chris stared at the wardrobe in fascinated horror. The door was coming unlatched all right, inching outward, slowly but perceptibly. Fazil must have sagged. Chris became aware of a faint, sickish feeling in the pit of his stomach. He began making tiny, frantic gestures to Geronimo. Something wrong with your knee there, Chris? Nutley inquired, breaking into his account of their adventures in London. My, uh, my knee? I noticed you rubbing it with your finger as if your kneecap was bothering you. Oh, no, just a nervous tick. Chris grinned foolishly, sweat beating his forehead. Yeah, I figure that might be it. You youngins go at things too hard these days, too much tension. Always on the go, go, go. Gotta slow down, son. That'll kill you if you keep it up. You could be right, Chris conceded. Sure am. That's what's so great about living out in the wide open spaces. Lots of fresh air. Time to relax. Know what I mean? The wardrobe door was bulging more and more. Chris's eyes flicked back and forth to Geronimo, trying to direct his attention. What was the matter here? Did he need a telegram to get the message? The wardrobe door gave a faint creak. Chris leapt out of his chair and slammed it shut. Suddenly, he realized he was breathing hard. Nutley regarded him oddly. Anything wrong there? Wrong? <laughs> Chris laughed as if the idea was ridiculous. I, I just have a compulsive urge to make sure all doors are shut tight. The ex-police chief returned to his gripping narrative of the Nutley's European travels. At long last, he rose and stubbed out the cigar. I better hit the hay. Can't stay up all night, John. Not as young as you fellas are. Nutley gave Chris a fatherly glance. If I was you, son, I'd turn in too. Nothing like rest for what ails you. These nervous tics just get worse. The less sleep you get. Finally, the door closed behind him. Chris drew a long, shuddering breath. With a scowl, he turned to Geronimo. Are you blind or something? Didn't you see that wardrobe coming open? Relax, Chunde. You heard what the old man said about nervous tics. Chris strode to the telephone. Again, he asked the switchboard operator to ring Vogel's number. The ringing went on and on. Still no answer. Chris finally gave up. So what now, fearless leader? Geronimo asked. I'll tell you one thing. We're going to get Sleeping Beauty out of that wardrobe. Out, out, out! Let's not be hasty now. Vogel may be back by morning. By morning? It'll be too late. How do you think he's going to get Fasil out of here in broad daylight? Through the lobby? The Apache rubbed his jaw. The room had French doors which led out to a small balcony. Geronimo opened the doors and stepped outside. Chris went with him. They peered around in the darkness. Apparently every room had a private balcony. Below lay the hotel guard. We might dump him down there, said Geronimo. Two minds with but a single thought. The boys went back into their room and began braiding bedsheets together. See if the coast is clear, Chris said. The Apache stepped out on the balcony again and returned a few moments later. 
There are some lights, but this side of the building looks pretty dark. So does the garden. I think we can make it if we watch our step. Good enough for me. You want to catch or lower? Better let me go down below. Okay, get going then. Chris pulled Facile out of the wardrobe and looped one end of the braided sheets under his arms, tying it to make it a sling. Then he dragged the unconscious thug out to the balcony. Two short flashes of light from the darkness below signaled that Geronimo was ready. Chris hoisted Facile over the railing and began lowering. He froze at the sudden sound of a door opening. Somebody was stepping out onto the second floor balcony directly below. Chris saw a woman emerge into view. She leaned over the rail, gazing at the twinkling lights of Bayoglu. Chris dared not move. Luckily, Geronimo had shrunk back out of sight. Meanwhile, Facile was dangling nonchalantly over the woman's head. What if she looked up? Chris closed his eyes, trying to shut out the horrible thought. His muscles were taut under the strain of supporting Facile's weight. Sweat trickled down his sides. At last, the woman went back into her room. Breathing hard, Chris resumed the job of lowering his burden to the ground. Easy does it now, bit by bit. Nothing to it, really. Another sound of a latch opening came to Chris's ears, and his taut nerves twanged like guitar strings. He whirled around, letting go of the bedsheet. Facile's body plunged downward. At that moment, the French doors swung open on the next balcony. Chris choked back a string of bloodthirsty words. It was Herkimer Nutley stepping out for a breath of night air. He was clad in a man's flannel nightgown. Hi there, son. Ain't you in bed yet? He called. Chris gave a nervous laugh that came out as a croak. Not quite ready for sleep, I guess. The main thing was to keep Nutley from looking down. What if the fall had jolted Facile back to consciousness? Chris moved to the side of the balcony facing Nutley and began a lively chat. Nutley was only too willing. He resumed his travel log as Chris convincingly played the part of a spellbound listener. Finally, even Nutley seemed to grow tired of his own voice. With a cavernous yawn, he bid Chris good night and went back into his room. By this time, Chris was jittery with nervousness and suppressed rage. He pulled out his pocket flashlight and signaled to the garden. Two quick flashes came back, all clear. Chris hurried down to join his buddy. Basile was still slumbering peacefully, apparently none the worse for the drop. The boys lugged him to some dense shrubbery away from the hotel windows. Do you think we should tie him up? Geronimo whispered. Better not. If anybody finds him like that, it could stir up a real investigation by the police. We'll just have to take our chances. With the braided sheets wrapped around them under their coats, they returned to the hotel. Chris decided to try Vogel's number again using the lobby phone. He listened tensely to the ringing. This time, somebody picked up at once. Evet? It was Mustafa's voice. Chris asked for Vogel and was told he'd been called out on urgent business. We had a visitor, Chris said. The fellow from the airport? He had a fainting spell, so we've taken him out for some fresh air. Chris explained the situation tersely. Okie dokie, you boys go to bed. I'll try and reach Mr. Vogel, Mustafa promised. Chris and Geronimo went up to their room uneasily. The Apache was soon sound asleep. 
Chris, too, dropped into a fitful slumber. When he awoke, it was broad daylight. His watch showed 9.07. Geronimo was in the shower. Without pausing for breakfast, the teen agents dressed and hurried down to the garden. After glancing around at the hotel windows, they strolled toward the clump of shrubbery. Chris casually towed the bushes aside. Facile was gone.